Well, Catherine, Megan, would you come on up here? She's going to read our scripture today. We are going through the book of John, which is a beautiful place for the foundation of our faith. Amen? And we are in chapter 19, and so Catherine is going to read, and uh, go right ahead. Yep, right there. Then Pilate (laughs) took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. He said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he, even, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless I had been given you, given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard These words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Yikes. Thank you. Ooh, that's sobering. You know, the interesting thing about really any, any situation is how familiar something can become. Something can become so familiar that we lose our sense of gratitude and wonder. In fact, familiarity can even breed contempt. How many of you, um, you know, when you first married somebody or you first had a friend and they have those really kind of quirky little things that they do? My wife gives the, uh, the encouragement to people, like if you're, if you're seeking out someone to date and they have that sort of like funny thing that they do, she goes, well, just multiply that times 10 because in five years... It might not be cute and quirky anymore. It might be super annoying. And, and that is somewhat true. That is somewhat true, right? You're, you're a really hilarious friend, but now you're just like, all you can do is never be near them when they eat chips. All right? Familiarity can breed contempt. These are probably not great examples, but you're picking up what I'm throwing down. We can lose that sense of wonder because we're so used to something, it just becomes, eh, yeah, been there, done that. And what... And, and, I, and I think that can even happen 
with the reality of the incredible miracle of what Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, has done here. We've heard the story, and, and we can lose that sense of, of the reality of what this is. And my desire for us today is that if, if that's happened to us, that, we, that the Holy Spirit would grant us a sense of gratitude and wonder again of like, wow, wow, Lord, I, for, I you know, I honestly, wow, I forgot about how incredible this actually is. And if you're here and you don't yet believe, you don't yet know Christ as your Savior, as the Lord God Almighty, and you don't relate to him like that yet, I hope that today God would grant you that you could know him as he wants you to know him because he loves you and he knows you really, really well. And I pray that today this would be either a step towards that or, my goodness, we would rejoice if this is the day that you realize you are the Messiah. And so, so those are the things I'm seeking for us today, that we'd be encouraged in our faith, that we'd be reminded of the wonder and the extraordinary power of God's love and what he's done for us, maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time. So let's re-examine this incredible section of Jesus' life and look at, the, look at these scriptures in the, in the Bible. And let me just tell you this. You guys, I want to say this. The Bible, right? You've got your Bible. Most of us have it on our phone now, right? This is my Bible. I believe what it says. I am who it says I say, or that it says I am. This Bible, okay, is a compilation of 66 books. Say 66 books. Okay? It's written by more than 40 authors. Would you say that? 40 authors. All right, and, and this happened during a period of approximately 1,500 years. Go ahead and say it, just. 1,500 years. Okay, so the word Bible, it, it, okay, and by the way, the original text of the Bible was communicated in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The Old Testament was written for the most part in Hebrew and a small percentage in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. So you got three languages. You got 1,500 years worth of the, the compilation of these 66 books by 40 different authors. The word Bible is, is essentially, it, it's, it's library. You have a library of books in your hand. Now, they're all, it's a compilation of them, but it's not one book. So when you're holding your Bible, you're hoarding, you're hoarding, well, you might be hoarding it. You're hoarding this truth and goodness, but you're also holding an entire library of 66 books and letters. And you have 40 different authors, 40 different witnesses. Now, I want to talk about that word for one moment, and I want to dive in with you. But I want you to understand that a lot of times in life, we're presented with this idea, and we sort of see truth as like a chain, okay? So imagine a chain uh, hanging from the ceiling or, or holding two things, all right? I'm, I gave you two pictures. Let me start over. Imagine me focusing on one example at a time. <laughs> start with that. Thank you, Jesus. Miracles, miracles are about to happen. We see it as a chain, okay, and there's, there's a tension. You're, you're, you're holding one part of the chain. I'm holding the other part of the chain, and a lot of us sort of see truth like that, and each piece of evidence that we hear is like a link in the chain, right? There's this tension. Here's the chain, and we're holding truth, and then we find out that one of those links was a well-meaning person that maybe just twisted it a little bit, like, you know, for a good reason, maybe they just didn't quite tell the whole truth. And all of a sudden, we find that out about that link in that chain. and that So now that link breaks, and we pff, fall down. 
Now, a lot of us think of truth like that, like, like there's, you know, you've had this strong held belief about something and then you find out, oh shoot, that wasn't true. And then what's the first thing that comes to mind? Maybe none of it's true. How many of you understand what I'm saying? How many of you can kind of feel that picture? And a lot, of, a lot of the arguments in this life are like that. It's called a straw man argument, right? I take like the weakest, dumbest example of someone usually violating the tenets of the faith, and I point to that, and I give you that narrative, and I say, well, what about this chucklehead that in the name of Jesus just slept with a bunch of the ladies in his church, spent most of the money on a new car and a new house, is that really what God's like? I'm not sure if we should believe in God anymore. It's like, whoa, how did we get from... Are you guys with me? And I'm not even sure if we should believe in organized religion if there's jerks like that. And it's like, that's called a straw man. We all agree that guy's a jerk. We're upset with him not because faith doesn't exist. We're upset with him because he violated the very tenets of faith that were created by a righteous and a just God that says thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not steal. And he violated all of that. And we look at that and go, that's disgusting. And we should. But somehow we end up going, so I don't know if I can trust anybody ever again. It's like, wait a minute. Are you with me? And, and that's how I think a lot of us think about faith is it's like one of those links breaks and suddenly we're wondering like, gosh, I, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe everything I believe is wrong. I'd like to suggest that's, a, that's a, not a very helpful way to think about the truth of who Jesus Christ is. But rather, I'd like to suggest to you that the scriptures present a really good way to see this is that you have... 66 different books and letters that were written by 40 witnesses, 40 different witnesses who heard from the Lord, saw different things, and wrote them down so you and I could read and examine the evidence. And in fact, throughout time, we see all kinds of other witnesses who have corroborated the same story. How many of you guys know that the way that we decide a case, whether it's true or whether it's false, is by the weight of the evidence. Amen? And what do we do? We listen to the witnesses who talk about the weight of the evidence. And let's say we had a case going on right now. And, 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 and there were 40 witnesses. Now, I'm not saying this about the Bible, so let me, let me use a different analogy because I don't want to do it again. See, I'm doing it again. All right, here we go. I did prepare, though. I know it doesn't sound like it. You've got a case, and let's say you have 20 witnesses, okay? And during the examination, you're listening to these 20 witnesses. Now, they all really want this to go well, but one of them is maybe not as ethical as the other 19. And so, although they are for the case, one of them is actually lying about what they did or didn't see. And it's found out during the trial that that one witness embellished and they weren't really there. They didn't actually see. They just really wanted it to go well for the defendant because the defendant was in this. And are you guys with me? And so they lied. They said, I was there. But someone else says, actually, you weren't there. We, we can prove that you weren't there. And they go, ah, oh, gosh, golly, you got me. I wasn't there. I just really wanted this to go well for the defendant. But the other 19 were there and they did see. And the defendant is innocent. Now, is the case of the one person who was a liar, discount the 19 witnesses that told the truth. And, you, and, if, and, and as we're standing here, right, none of you would say, I'm going to abandon, like, I actually think that defendant's guilty. I don't care what you say, because that one witness turned out to be faulty. 
You wouldn't do that, would you? I would like to suggest to all of us, to our brains, to our hearts, to our souls, that what we're doing when we're examining the evidence of who Jesus Christ is, of who the Father is and the Holy Spirit, when we examine the veracity of the Scriptures, that we allow ourselves to look at each thing as a witness, say witness, of the truth. And should we find that there might be some witnesses that are out there that it, didn't, it just doesn't add up what they were sharing, then we say, okay, that, I'm going to go ahead and put that one on the shelf. That was, that was weird. That was a weird thing. That's one. And I'm going to say, you make a strong point. That piece of evidence, that witness is no longer as strong in my heart as it once was. And we set that aside and say, that, that was weird. But we don't abandon all of the other witnesses, the scores of witnesses that have and continue to tell the truth, and with it, abandon our belief and our faith that Jesus is who he says he is. Are you with me? Did that track? Okay. Now, with that in mind, I want to share with you a perspective from one of those witnesses, actually several witnesses now. So let's continue in the scriptures. They're crucifying Jesus. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Can we get these scriptures up so they can read along with me? Which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. You can just leave that up. Now, the first thing I want to tell you is this scripture right here, John is writing and he's telling us, this is what happened. I saw this with my eyes. And in, and in fact, I'm going to, we're going to get to this in just a moment, but I want to read this line to you. John is speaking to us later in this chapter and he says this, he who saw it has borne witness. John is speaking what he saw firsthand and he says, his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. The purpose of why John wrote this gospel is to share with us from those witnesses what happened. Are you guys with me? John has given to us, and, and the desire that he has is I'm presenting this evidence to you. I'm presenting these, this witness to you so that you'll know who Jesus is and what he's done. And my hope is that you would believe. Amen? All right, so here we go. Jesus has just been crucified. And as this happens, they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. The first thing that is happening right there is we see this. This is the fulfillment of something that was written in Psalm 22, verse 16, a thousand years before this happened. A thousand years before this happened, in the Old Testament, which is the law and the prophets, the, 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 the scriptures, 800 years before crucifixion was even invented, as a capital punishment by the Romans. 800 years before they were doing crucifixions and 1,000 years before this happened, this was written in Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Speaking of the crucifixion. And this happens to Jesus. Prophesied 1,000 years earlier. 
In Isaiah 53, 12, it also says, now this was 700 years before Christ was born, in a different book by a different person at a different time, 300 years after that, then in Isaiah, this word comes, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was, he was crucified between the, the two thieves. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we have two different witnesses that are speaking to the fact that when the Messiah comes, this will happen to him. And these, both these things just happened. And we just saw this happen right now in John 19. It's amazing, isn't it? I want you to catch the gravity of this. Two different witnesses, a thousand years before and 700 years before, Jesus completely fulfills this. You with me? Let's continue the scripture. So Pilate also wrote an inscription, and he put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said that I'm the king of the Jews. <clears throat> and Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. That's Psalm 22, verse 18. And that was written in about 1044 B.C. Come on. And it's amazing, too, because they dif it differentiates in Psalm 22:18 that, that they cast lots for one part and they divided the other part. It's pretty specific. And Jesus fulfills that. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Jesus is pretty amazing, taking care of mama even in his, in his death. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture. Uh, could you put that up for me? Um, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Uh, go ahead and go to the next one. That's all I gave you? Hmm. Well, then I apologize to everyone. I feel like it should somehow be someone else's fault, but in light of that, we're talking about Jesus. You should know that you're supposed to ask me, are you sure? <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth to fulfill the scripture. This is from Psalm 69, 21. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And that, that was written in about 1015 B.C. You guys, are you guys picking this up? This is like 1,040 I mean, years, just, just shy of 40 years earlier that this was said. 
And this specifically, this happens. Jesus does this. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, I want you to catch this. Yes, it was finished that he was doing what he's doing. He's giving his life for us. We're going to get into that a little bit more. Yes, he's saying, I, I am making all things new. That's true. But also he's saying, it is finished. I am fulfilling every messianic prophecy about me, and I just did the last one of the crucifixion side. Now, he's going to rise again because there's more prophecies to come, right? But in regard to this, he goes, it is finished. Now, I, I have, there's a whole other part of this that I'm like, oh, it's so good, but it's not this preach. But Psalm 22, for your homework, go home and read Psalm 22 because in other gospels he talks about, you know, where he says, my God, my God, forgive them, they know what they do, where he talks about why have you forsaken me is the opening line to Psalm 22, and Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. And, and it talks about exactly what he's doing. So it wasn't like, oh, God, I don't know what you did. You can't look at me anymore. He's literally saying, hey, everybody, this is what's happening right now is Psalm 22. Oh, but I preached a little bit of it anyway. But you go home and read about it and just get your mind blown because it's beautiful what he's doing. He's redeeming all things. It is finished. I have fulfilled these things. Let's keep going. And since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, they broke the legs of Jesus, I'm sorry, not Jesus, that did not happen, delete that from the text, came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. Say amen. amen. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let me read you those scriptures. Zechariah 12.10 and I will pour out on the house of David and on the hip inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn son. In Acts, that happens. What must we do to be saved? But we're not in Acts yet, so let's keep going. Zechariah 13.1 on that day, there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Do you catch that? They pierced him, and out came the water and the blood. A fountain was opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We are saved by the water and the blood. Jesus fulfilled that. That, that prophecy was between 520 and 470 B.C., 500 years before it happened to Jesus. Another witness at another time in another book. Come on. Are you guys alive? Because this is exciting. <laughs> All right. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so he came and he, he took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And the fulfillment of that scripture that's happening is Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And that was in 700 BC, 700 years before Isaiah said this would happen. Is that not amazing? He's fulfilling scripture after scripture after scripture. What an incredible, incredible thing. Now, let me read a, a little excerpt here and, uh, of, of just how extraordinary this is that Jesus would do this. Because, you know, the reality is, right, they say, uh, what do they say? They say, liars lie and liars use statistics. Has anybody, no one here has heard this? Okay. Well, we can get drowned in information, and you almost kind of become numb to it, right? People are just like, blah, 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 a bunch of math, and you're just sort of like, yeah, maybe nothing's true. Maybe I'm the only one that feels that way. You ever just talk to a really smart person with a really dumb idea, and you're like, I don't feel like that makes sense, but I don't feel smart enough to say anything back? Okay. Well, <laughs> I think sometimes when we hear some of these things, our mind just doesn't know how to quite take it in. So here's a really cool way to look at how cool is this? I know you guys are already super smart and smarter than me. So you probably got this, but I like word pictures, so here we go. All right. A number of years ago, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. The book was based on the science of probability, and it was vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. It set out the odds of, one, of any one man in all of history fulfilling even only eight of the major prophecies and 270 ramifications fulfilled by the life of Christ. So just eight of them. Just eight of them. <laughs> so the probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight such prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. So that is 100 quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion. Which I know you think I'm making up that word because it sounds like a cartoon word. But it's not. A trillion has 12 zeros. A quadrillion has 15 zeros. A hundred quadrillion. One and a hundred, say quadrillion. Because it just sounds fun. Don't you feel smarter having said it right now? I think you sound smarter. Stoner claims that that many silver dollars would be enough to cover the face of the entire state of Texas two feet deep. I was just in the state of Texas. Has anybody here driven across Texas before? It takes forever. Ever. Yeah, so you're picking up what we're throwing down here. It's giant. They're so big that they consider themselves a separate country from the United States. <laughs> that was funny for some of you. Okay. All right. That's fine. That's good. Three buckets. Remember the three buckets, guys. All right. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the three buckets. It's really important for us here at Christ Center. All right. So it would fill the entire state with silver dollars two feet deep. Can you imagine? I mean, even if we filled this room with silver dollars two feet deep, that's a lot of silver dollars. Then multiply that times the state of Texas, okay? Then you send someone out blindfolded. I don't know why they're blindfolded, because at this point, does it matter? 
Like you would know one silver dollar from another, which I think is mean too. You're just wandering around tripping. Anyway, he can be blindfolded or not blindfolded. But I didn't write this, so let's go with blindfolded. (laughs) Send him out in Texas in any direction, and he would be able on his first attempt to pick up one specifically marked silver dollar out of 100 quadrillion silver dollars. That's the odds that Jesus would fulfill just eight of the 60 major prophecies that he just fulfilled. That's some pretty strong evidence. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's just one of many. Let's not even get into the fact that we're here (laughs) and we can understand that we're here. Whoa. All right, now here's here's the situation I mean, that's just exciting. You guys got 10 more minutes? Okay. All right. Now, the thing that I want you to catch here, though, is that we've also been given... Okay, let me say it like this. When you hear things like that, do you sometimes think, like, it must not be that clear, though? Because if it was, wouldn't everybody just believe? Does anybody here, like, reverse engineer this sometimes? No, seriously, like, do you... Maybe you don't understand the way I just said it. I'm talking fast. Okay. Do you ever look at evidence like this and go, there must be something wrong with that evidence? Because if it was that clear, if it was that ironclad, wouldn't really smart people just believe? And like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and all those guys would say, hey, this just in, he's the Messiah! (laughs) Right? Like, wouldn't they? Uh, Do you, are you with me? And so then you're like, well, if they're not doing that, then it must be because there's something flawed about this evidence. There must be, that, it just must be those Jesus-y people or those ignorant people that believe this. Maybe this is just math for dummies. They write books about it. That was funny to me. You guys are, that was some pure gold. Okay. So, 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 so you start to wonder, like, it can't be that easy. Because if the evidence was so clear, more people would believe especially the ones that are irritating me right now. So how is that? that, Is it a problem of evidence? And I'd like to suggest to you that it is not. See, one of the gifts that God actually gives us, and I want to tell you this, it is a gift from the Lord that he does not make you believe. Even if the evidence actually contradicts what it is that you want to believe right now, he's like, I'm not going to make you believe in me. I'm not apologizing for who I am. The math shows who I am. We don't even have to get into science or philosophy or any other thing. Just the math shows that I am who I am. But if you don't want to believe it, I'm not going to make you love me. I've shown you how much I love you, but I actually want you to choose me back. And if you want to do the calisthenics and the stretching that it takes to get around that, I'm going to give you the freedom to do that. Let me read you an excerpt from uh, Reflections on the Existence of God by Richard E. Simmons. It's a short essay. I'm going to read you an excerpt from it. When people establish belief, they should do so because they're utterly convinced that what they are believing, that which they're putting their confidence in, is true. Truth is paramount. The idea of truth has always been very straightforward. Truth is that which is ultimately, finally, and absolutely real. That's a table. Does anybody see something? That's a table. Regardless of what you believe, my computer is sitting on a table. Regardless of what I believe, 
All right, I can, I can buy that. Can you guys buy that? All right. The truth is the way it is, and therefore it's utterly trustworthy and dependable. I believe it's here. No. I believe. All right. I believe it's here. Accuracy is an essential component of truth. In fact, truth does not yield to opinion. How many of you believe that the table is here? Everybody vote for it. Let's see what it does. Okay. I'm enjoying this. All right. It doesn't matter how sincerely you believe something. If in the end it is false, truth is in harmony with reality, and we should therefore always seek to live our lives in harmony with what is true. As human beings, we have, however, an unusual relationship with the truth. There's a side of us that wants to pursue the truth, particularly if it's leading us in a direction that we want to go. Say, ouch, or amen. On the other hand, we seem to balk when it leads us in a direction that we don't want to go. Often we establish beliefs because they generally express how we want life to be. This is why Blaise Pascal says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. I'm going to say that one more time. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. This reminds me of an old classic movie that I watched several years ago. It was titled Judgment at Nuremberg and was based on the true story of the Nuremberg trials where a number of Nazi leaders who survived the war were accused of crimes against humanity for their involvement in the atrocities committed under the Nazi regime. During one trial, they seek to discover how the German people could so easily turn blind eyes and deaf ears to the crimes of the Nazi regime. I remember the actor Burt Lancaster being questioned on the witness stand in his role as a German war criminal. The prosecutor in questioning Lancaster wanted to know how the German people could not have known what was happening to the Jews. And he responded, if the German people said they did not know, it was because they did not want to know. The thought that their beloved country being involved in a mass extermination was intolerable. Instead of accepting the hard truth and attempting to stop the Nazi atrocities, many of the German people simply chose to deny the reality of the Holocaust altogether. This is a clear picture of willful blindness. This seems to be a part of the human condition. What do you think about that? Could it be that there are many of us, and maybe I think there's parts of us, we have to remember this about ourselves. This is, this is um, I'm calling us all today to humility and, and rigorous intellectual engagement. I'm calling us to say, I choose to believe what's true, even if it's not what I find attractive. And that takes humility. It's easy to look at somebody else when they're doing it, right? You're just like, that is the dumbest thing. <laughs> it's much harder when it's us, when it's something that we just really, really, really want to be true. 
Are you guys hearing me? And what I want us to, what I want us to go away with today is, is a willingness to recognize that we need the Lord to help us to arrive at a conclusion that's based on what's true and not just what we want to be true. We can see it for others, but we have a hard time seeing it for ourselves. And I want to say that there is enough evidence that Jesus Christ is indeed exactly who the Father says he is, who he said that he is. He is. There is enough evidence that Christ Jesus is the example of the Father's heart for every one of us and how much he loves us and how worthy he is to call us to a standard of righteous love, of justice, of mercy, and of grace. We're going to take communion together in closing. And I want to ask you, as we're getting ready to take communion, they're going to start handing that out right now. Do we, do we have, um, Lincoln, do we have those slides that I gave you for the prayer? Carly didn't give that to you? <laughs> this time, I know my track record's a little shaky today, but this time... <laughs> Oh, may I have one of those, Rick? Thank you. In March, several years ago, the author of this paper that I just uh, read to you Speaking of the United States Senate chaplain, Richard Halverston, he wrote him in a, in a paper and he said this, the fact is that the birth, crucifixion, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ are celebrated worldwide by folk of every race, language, and color every year. And believing in Jesus, they have been delivered from the most evil, disastrous, frustrating, debilitating habits and life forms possible. The real problem with Jesus Christ is not that folk can't believe in him, but that they won't believe in him. And today, I want to ask that God would grant us the grace and the mercy. Do you guys know that it says that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of those that do not believe so that they will not believe? And that no one comes to the Father, no one comes to Christ unless the Father calls them. And we get to co-labor with God in that because the Bible also says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that none should perish. But if any would believe in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. So we know it's his will that all would be saved. So we can confidently pray, God, call your people today. God, open up the eyes of the blind. Open up the eyes, the spiritual eyes of those that are deceived and blinded by the God of this age. The enemy is still going around deceiving people. 
coming up with well-crafted, seemingly smart arguments to why Jesus must not be the Christ, to why God is not just. But the reality is that we see in Christ God's heart for humanity that none would perish. And we see also in the teachings of Christ that he gives us the freedom to actually reject him and not live forever if we don't want to. It says, if you believe in Christ, you need not fear the second death, but to know Christ is eternal life. Did you hear me? We're all going to die, but if you're in Christ, you can live forever. If you're not in Christ, you can die. Which one do you want? He gives you that freedom. I'm not trying to manipulate you because God's not trying to manipulate you. What I'm saying is he open-handedly says, you can believe in me or not believe in me, but know this. I love you, and if you want to know what my heart is towards you, look at my son, Jesus Christ. This is the price I pay for you. This is the life I lived for you. This is my heart towards you, that you can be forgiven of sin, and you can live with me forever. The God who holds nothing back, not even my very own son. And Christ would say, the God who holds nothing back, not even my very own life. Were we able to get those slides up? Okay, so I want to just, uh, I want to meditate on this. We're going to take communion, and then I want us to pray together, and, we'll, and we'll, uh, we'll wrap up with a prayer. So will you put up that first scripture for me, Lincoln? In Romans 10, 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Will you bring up that second one? Can you guys see that? Okay. I'm getting a little older. I'm going to be a grandpa soon. And apparently my eyes found out about it. <laughs> I, want you to just, I want you to just read this. And then together I want to read it out loud. So I just want you to read this. Now, if you're willing, I want us to affirm our faith in Christ. And you may be here today, and I hope that today, if you are not yet following Christ, that today you would want to pray this prayer from your heart and become a follower of Christ and receive everything that, that, that I just shared. And the reality is that God says, everyone in the kingdom of heaven Every angel, every creature rejoices when one person comes into the kingdom. You are that precious to him. Everybody stops and just goes, yeah! <laughs> because he gave everything for you. And he wants you to live with him forever. And for those of us that are in him, I want you to remember 
how desperately and wonderfully and perfectly and crazy, unyieldingly, lavishly he loves you. And I want us to remember that and reaffirm that in our own hearts so our own heart can be bold and confident and go, I don't know what's going on right now in the world, but I know one thing. My daddy loves me. My daddy's with me. My dad is working everything to good. And someday when it's perfect and all the kids that are willing to choose him, choose him, he's coming back and he's going to make everything all right with a new earth and a new heaven. And I want you confident in that today. So why don't we stand to our feet? If you want to read this, let's read this together and then let's take communion. Lord Jesus, I confess that I have sinned and I am in need of salvation. I believe that you came to earth to save people who are lost in their sin. And I believe that you died on the cross as the substitute for my sin. I believe that you took the punishment that I deserved for the sins that I have committed and forgave me all my sins. I believe that you died for me and that you rose again from the dead and that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. I trust in you and I place my faith in you. Thank you for dying for me forgiving my sins, making me clean, and reconciling me back to you, the Holy Spirit and the Father. Thank you for all that you've done for me. I receive you into my life as my Savior and my Lord. I choose to follow you, to learn from you, and to serve you from now on. Amen. Hallelujah. Come on. Now, I would love to know if there's anyone in this room that just chose to follow Jesus for the first time. Would you just raise your hand if, if you're like, man, today was my day that it just made sense, and I want to start following him today. Well, my hand's up. So you guys, I want you to rejoice. Your Savior finally got, your, your savior finally got to your pastor. <laughs> Jesus took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. You preach my death until I come again. Let's take the bread. He took the cup and he blessed it. This is the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Do this in remembrance of me. May the Lord fill you with boldness to share with gentleness the kindness and the lavish love of our Father and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Go give a reason for the hope that you have. God bless you guys. Have a great day. If you need prayer, the team's coming up.